Right. <laughs> now, Blake, this, Blake, this, this, this notion of responsibility um, and maturity leads me to sort of ask you a question um, that I've heard many people express as a frustration or concern with how with some of the things that you've articulated both in your presentation on inoculation and previously there's this sense that you sort of convey where you very sincerely talk about your teenage years and how you read Fawn Brody or you know all sorts of uh, historical books and you know you clearly were an early reader and, and you talk about all the rich sources of materials that were available to you and to everyone else, even back in the 60s or whenever you were reading them. And the way that it comes off when you articulate it is all you lame, you know, lame-o members who, um, who are now complaining about being deceived, you had access to the books that I had access to. And if you just cared enough or were smart enough or whatever, you could have gone and found these books and read them and discovered about Peepstones and Polyandry and the Book of Abraham way early in your childhood. But you just didn't make that effort because you were either lazy or slothful or not smart enough or whatever. And I know I'm not in any way characterizing how you really said that. But I do think that that's, for some reason, when you pitch that story, it causes people to, to strongly react sometimes with anger that, that you're just not getting it. That a black guy like Darius Gray says that he wasn't told until the day before his baptism in the 1960s that he wasn't going to be able to have the priesthood. I don't think that m- missionaries over the past 10 or 20 years have been trained uh, when they taught a black person to mention the curse of Cain doctrine that we used to have and the prohibition on the priesthood. And many black people find that out afterwards. And and some would even argue that we're encouraged not to read, quote, books that are from symposia or books that are not faith-promoting or that are not published in the right sources, or they just didn't have access to BYU studies or dialogue or Sunstone, etc. And so, um, you know, are you being sensitive enough and fair enough to, to, to the broad range of members when you relate your story and sort of imply that the rest of us should have had a similar experiences to you? Well, I, I can immediately say I'm not sensitive enough. I mean, I already know that. The, <laughs> but let me tell you what I'm reacting to. There are numerous people that I see on the net who are blaming the church for their lack of information. I mean, John, did you just wake up one day and all of this information was magically there? Or was it there if you were willing to pay attention? And here's my concern. My concern is kind of a victimology that people like to set up and they want to blame somebody because they just weren't aware when they had everything at their fingertips that they needed to be aware. Now, I'm not talking about new converts. This is a different issue. These are are people who have been members all of their lives. And and maybe I'm not being fair. I felt the same way as a senior when I was studying my buns off and other guys were out, you know, partying and... uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, someday that's going to come back to haunt them because they're just not being, they're not paying attention. And I, I believe that, and, you know, I'm not saying that the church doesn't have an obligation to be straightforward and open and honest and at an age appropriate, cognitive, um, potential appropriate way of addressing these issues. I am saying, however, that I believe every person who commits their life to a way has a duty to know about what they're committing their life to and to study it. If one in, involves their entire heart, might, mind, and strength, they don't get to leave out their mind. And they get to, to use all of their strength 
in in the effort to be knowledgeable and to know about it. So when I hear people saying, I was 47 and I'd never heard any of this and it's all the church's fault, I want to say, well, it's not all the church's fault. Um, I, I don't doubt that at some point, you know, maybe they felt like they were being faithful because if they read some kind of anti-Mormon tract. But, you know, I just I just don't buy it, frankly. I think that, that people who who are not really well aware, just haven't taken the time, and, and then they wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to take the time. And when they take the time, they, they find out, gee, those, the way I thought the world was just ain't quite that way. So am I being insensitive? Yeah, I, I purposely want to I purposely want to call consciousness to people who have a victimology about this kind of a problem, who have been lifelong members and who want to blame the church for their lack of knowledge and information about the church. I'm not talking, however, about people who are new converts, and we have a real problem here. We can't expect our missionaries who are going out, who themselves have not encountered this kind of information, to convey it. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of foreign to me. I can tell you about my experience with blacks getting the priesthood because I was literally on the way out the door with a lady who I, the only time in my mission I was approached, I was approached by a black woman from Ethiopia and she asked us to teach her. And we taught her and she progressed. And literally, I, I, I had, I mean, I really, really pained over it, but I knew I couldn't possibly baptize her without telling her fully about our doctrine. And I was literally out the door to go tell her. She had a little boy named Simone, by the way. We called him Simone because I was in Italy. And uh, he was 10 years old. And, went, you know, what a great kid. But I was literally on my way out the door to go teach her about the priesthood ban when I got a call from the assistants to the president in my mission telling me not to tell her that the church didn't allow blacks to have priest, the priesthood because... Salt Lake had sent a wire, and they had changed the the doctrine, and I was really upset. I said, "Guys, this is this is not a joking matter. This is not funny," <laughs> and and I just I was upset. And then my mission president came on the line, and he said, "No, really, Elder Osler, we got a communique from Salt Lake City." And there was one thing I knew about my mission president: and that's this guy was never going to tell a joke in his life. Right, right. And and so. I was stunned, and so I went and taught her the lesson, but it didn't have the same impact. I, this literally happened this way. I said, until yesterday, we didn't allow blacks to have the priesthood in our church, but that changed today. <laughs> so, and she, so, she very innocently looked at me, and she said, did they change that just for me? <laughs> That's a good story. And I said, I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Blake, your, your main point when you, when you say that stuff, just for the benefit of our listeners not having anger at you, is that you're saying it really is a shared responsibility, that maybe the church could do more or do better or do things differently. Um, but but you're also saying that, that we don't get a free pass. Um, a lot of information has been available for a long time if people felt motivated enough and were determined enough to find out. Now, is, is that a fair summary? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah, that's a fair summary. Okay. And John or Deke, uh, David, do either of you have sort of a... a, a reply or a counter reply or whatever well i, I what the pro- go ahead go ahead john i was gonna say i think that the i mean a, a counter problem though is if the church is putting out um devotional materials mission manuals uh seminary manuals ces manuals institute and all that sort of thing and and it is including information that is geared towards the people that are on the naive first level naivete 
that Blake talks about. So it's is just talking about you know the all the letters in in the New Testament as being written literally by Paul or all the other other problems with the you know the literal you know taking the first five books of the Bible as literally written by Moses or then uh, taking the book of Abraham as being imagining that it was actually written by the hand of Abraham as opposed to being a hundred AD if those if that information isn't being is if the incorrect information is is still going through the the devotional manuals then then that is something where the people are getting uh, a mixed message at best the other information may be there for them to find but they're also getting this information for the first level naivete folks right right so definitely clean up the manuals and and teach it right or accurately to the extent that you want to um no i mean I think as if a- people were Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt. I, uh, All I was going to say is, I think that if people, if it was being, if it was being phrased the way uh, Blake keeps uh, phrasing things, like talking about, I don't know, if you if you were to present in a lesson manual the Book of Abraham, just the way he's doing it, or again, but the rest of scriptures. In other words, talking about the problem with with scriptures, it's not just with Latter Day Saint scriptures; it's with the Bible itself. You know, if you talk about it in a more realistic way like that, I think that I think that's something that everybody could be able to, you know, still not, not have destroyed their faith. I think they would just have a better understanding to ground their faith in. If their faith is, if their testimony is based uh, on belief in God and, and the core gospel principles instead of understandings of history or, or individual books. Sure. David, what, me, what you, oh. I want to go on record as long as I can saying that the manual on Brigham Young that talked about his first marriage that didn't mention the fact that he had other wives and so forth, I disagreed with that. And I, I believe we need to be more forthcoming. And the church does have an obligation to make sure that its manuals are accurate. And if they're going to be accurate, they have to include information that's uncomfortable for some. It's just, it has to be. And so, from that perspective, you know, I'd like to see the church include more, be more forthcoming. And, and I believe, for instance, with the Joseph Smith manual, they're, they're making an effort to do that. I think things are improving. Okay, so Blake, you, you actually wish that those earlier manuals had been done a little differently. Yeah, I do. Yeah, because for, for our listeners who don't know, not only can you search the entire Brigham Young manual and, and never sort of, I think, have any mention of polygamy or plural marriage. I also think that there were quotes, as I understand it, where Brigham Young said, men love your wives or whatever, that they actually changed it to say wife. In other words, they did everything they could to purge even the appearance of polygamy from that manual. Is that is that fair to say, Blake? Yeah, and I, I think that we have a duty to present it in a way that is 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 simply transparent and open and honest. And, you know, even in our devotional materials, however, devotional materials don't have to be historical research, and I want to be clear about that, too. Yeah. So, and so, there's also the question of if it, if it ends up being published in such a way that preserves a teaching about polygamy, does that open the church up to an accusation that we're teaching polygamy? Sure. I think that the church is still perhaps too concerned about that, and that that is part of what leads people to revise it, not so much that they're trying to bury what, you know, bury the truth and hide it from people. Well, then they're going to have to take Section 132 out of the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm sorry. No, that's interesting. Right, but that ends up attracting more attention than just leaving it there. There's a sense in which the status quo ends up leaving, you know, doesn't prompt CNN headlines. Well, this is going to make even more people hate me, but I believe in polygamy. I just don't believe that we're called to practice it. So what does Gordon B. Hinckley, you think that when he says it's not polygamy, 
polygamy is not doctrinal. What do you think he meant by that? Well, here's what He's I think he meant. He's talking to his audience. I mean, the <laughs> yeah. audience is the national audience there. And so in the exact same way that then he goes back and he t- says something different when he's talking to the Mormon audience, you know? So, I mean, he's considering his audience. The end purpose of polygamy isn't polygamy. The end purpose of polygamy is to have faith, learn to have faith through the trial, and to learn to know God. And I've got an entire presentation on that, but the end purpose of polygamy ceases to function when it becomes socially acceptable, the same way that, that it, the, the test of Abraham couldn't function if it were totally acceptable to do sacrifices of one son. wouldn't be a test. Right, right. Okay. Uh, I know that that's going to be a whole episode in and of itself, but that's fascinating. Blake, do you think that josephsmith.net, the church's website on Joseph Smith, should mention that he had 30 wives? Because there's no mention of anything, any polygamy at all on the entire website, as I understand it. Or at least there wasn't when I first checked it out. I'd have to look at it. My understanding is there's a reference to a fair article. But no, it shouldn't mention how many how many wives he had because we just don't know. And the big problem with polygamy, for instance, if we're talking about Joseph Smith, is what for the, for the most part what we're doing is passing along Nauvoo gossip. This is not something that they spoke about. This is something that they intentionally kept secret. And what we get is a lot of secondhand hearsay. That we get very incomplete glimpses of what's going on. We don't fully understand it. I mean, even his first wife, we you know, we hardly know anything about Fanny Alger. Okay, okay, was that kind of thing. Okay, so you're saying that you're saying that um, there, it's it's too uncertain to be able to really make claims for sure. But it's pretty certain. Yeah. The church website lists 30, 30 wives. So anyway, um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting issue. Well, let me let me turn it a little bit. We're kind of wrapping towards the end, but I would like to hear from each of you, you know, what the church needs to do now. And and there are just three elements I'd like to sprinkle in as you guys each consider your answer of where do we go from here. Number one is you hear a lot of discussion about milk versus meat. And at some point, I think, you know, members are dying for meat. And I know that some would say that theological or gospel meat isn't historical meat, but it's really sometimes hard to separate it. And so I'd ask, when does the meat come, as the first question? You know, can you ever imagine something like an advanced Sunday school or a required institute? You know, can the church do anything to stem this tide of people becoming angry? I mean, I was I was in a dinner last night with some very prominent Salt Lake City people um, if I told you who they were, you would know, uh, you know, who I was talking about. And, you know, there was a 16 year old there who didn't know, um, that the, 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 the priesthood ban, um, applied to blacks uh, prior to 1978. He grew up in Salt Lake city, uh, a relative of a prominent church leader. He had never been taught that another person gave this excuse that, um, Joseph Smith actually never consummated any of his you know, relationships with his wives. And so there still is so much misinformation out there. What can the church do to clear it up? What would be appropriate? What wouldn't be? Can we ever expect meat? Or are we going to have the diet of milk in Sunday school and priesthood for the rest of our lives? We'll start with David and then go to John Hamer and then end with Blake as to each of yours vision of what the church might be able to do um, to render this problem if you see it as a problem. I see that, uh, from my point of view, I see it's not so much that the church doesn't address these issues, but that it addresses them unevenly, because there's a lot of stuff that is covered in the enzyme. 
Um, the Book of Abraham has been discussed in the Enzyme as far as what it translates to be and what it means. Um, the, uh, the versions of the first vision have been discussed in the Enzyme. A lot of stuff has been discussed within the framework of church publications. And when I teach the Aaronic Priesthood, my attitude is, and I teach them every week, my attitude is that if it's in the Enzyme, then it's fair game yeah. as a reference. Um, something the church could do rather quickly and rather painlessly is um, include articles that have been written in church publications that address these issues seriously in the suggested readings to, for teachers to expand their, um, their knowledge uh, as part of the preparation for a course. Yeah, but what if what if what if in Sunday school and priesthood and relief society, you know, we start exploding into discussions about post manifesto polygamy and Adam God doctrine and and uh, you know what really happened with the Nauvoo Expositor and Joseph's martyrdom, you know, would this? I have this theory that inoculation is is going to be good for people's personal spiritual journeys, but it's actually going to be bad for the church. Because maybe it's better for the church to just delay as long as possible the members' knowledge about this history. Because as soon as a critical mass of members know the true story, both their myths that they have in their minds get diluted, and they start you know, questioning, and some are going to leave, and others are going to just say, well, the church, because it's so less um, Walt Disney-like than I thought, uh, it doesn't deserve the same level of, of observance that I once gave it. You know, do do any of you see any credit to that? that? That this new opening, this new awakening, that's sort of like a pendulum that we did in the 70s and then we pulled back and now we're doing it again. Do any of you feel like this could actually lead to a weakening of the church in terms of, you know, bums in seats, attendance, vitality of its members? I think it could if it's not addressed correctly, but I think if it's addressed in the right way, um, you know, it definitely could be done in a way that does not undermine the spiritual message of the church. And to go back to this notion of talking about Adam, God, um, and these explosions of conversations and gospel doctrine, that exists right now. You know, things come up, um, you know, if the Iraq war comes up, somebody's pet issue and people end up kind of... Uh, ruining gospel doctrine by talking about political political topics. I've seen that happen. Um, and everybody that sees that just kind of rolls their eyes and says, I guess we're going to have to wait till next week before we have a real gospel doctrine class. And, you know, that I think that you have to uh, assume a certain level of maturity among the members and act on that and treat them with respect and, uh, you know, do that within a, a framework of spot of, uh, fostering spiritual growth and you can navigate those those problems so dave you think the members can handle a candid discussion of the truth of the factual yeah, history i do so you say bring it on mm -hmm. all right john hammer what do you think Oh, I would I would say the the bring it on is better anyway too because I think that when you're talking about that kind of a class to me that sounds very very interesting. I think everybody's it's going to be lively and there's going to be fun and people want to actually come and listen to it. But um, I think that there's a couple there there are a couple things that could be done and there's a couple things that shouldn't be done. So you're talking about a pendulum swing back to when we're going back to uh, the way history started to happen when it first became professional in the 60s and 70s, the New Mormon history. But I, I think that actually we may be coming to a something beyond that. We don't know what the new thing is called after the New Mormon history, but I think as I've talked to Mormon historians, everybody's kind of agreed that we are now post the New Mormon history, 
And I think that the the advantage that you can have is instead of having all of this deconstruction that is the job of historians to do, where you're taking out every little detail that you're you're um, harping on here, and say instead of saying we have this real simple view of way, the way our faith is, and now we have history, and the historians every little detail they have means that view was was false, and that when we create that dichotomy, instead of having that view. I think you can have a you can allow your allow history to uh, take the the in the rich details that you have of it together. You can synthesize that into a new, uh, richer, uh, uh, but po- still positive, uh, visionary uh, view of your heritage and history. And I think that that is something that is absolutely can be done, and it can be done in a in a faithful context in a devotional history. So you're kind of saying if we borrow from Fowler's stages of faith. That, you know, you have your naive testimony at, at level three, you have the dark night of, of the soul at four, but an actual in-depth, enlightened discussion of church history can actually help move you to a level five stage of faith that's more mature, more seasoned, more textured, and even more strong. And, and, and Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying, I'm saying that historians and the, and the movement itself, that the, that the church in a way, not everybody in the church, but the culture has already experienced the the part, the number you know stage four that you're calling it there where where this this information has all sort of come out and percolated around and really affected the history community and the church has reacted to that but that isn't it's not these things aren't a surprise anymore so we're not just living with with this this simple simple image that is now being shattered that we're we're past a simple image being shattered and i think that now instead of continue, the historians of course have to keep deconstructing everything because that is that's their job but i think that it's possible now for for leaders and for writers and for and for faithful historians to synthesize a new more complete richer picture that like you say is going to just enrich everybody in a different way and I think that happens quite naturally and inevitably. Um, in the last Mormon Matters, uh, Mormon Matters I, uh, podcast, Jane Nelson Seawright noted that Hugh Nibley said that if the court papers that documented Joseph Smith's treasure digging were legitimate, then this was the most damning evidence, evidence against the Mormon church thus far. And that's something that we can look back on and just kind of... Uh, Say it was a, was a non-issue. Exactly. Um, you know, but that's an example of how this, this picture... Uh, that we have of the origins of Mormonism has become a richer picture over time to encompass what was once considered to be scandalous and utterly damning to the church. Right. All right, Blake, we're going to give you the last word on painting a picture for how, you know, I know that the First Presidency listens to this podcast, so this is your (laughs) chance to tell them how they can address uh, history going forward. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course. I'm I'm glad that you do. Um, <laughs> first off, I'm a real believer in transparency, openness, and honesty. I believe they're always more healthy. I believe that families who have secrets are unhealthy, and those who deal with them and heal are are always better off. And so I, you know, I would argue that 
the, the real devil of this discussion is in the details. At what age and in what form do we really begin to do this? Because all, we all agree that there needs to be some kind of inoculation, and we all believe in openness and honesty and transparency. Those aren't the issues. And, and that's where the real concerns for me start, I suppose. But let me go on record simply saying that, you know, we, we kind of do this automatically. We have kind of three levels. We have gospel essentials class for the new converts. We have gospel doctrine class for, for those who are really faithful. And we have high priest for those who've already slept through enough lessons <laughs> and heard it all before. And, and then we have sunstone for those who are the super intelligentsia and are far beyond any of that. And so, you know, it's just... It, all of this can be self-selecting. The concern I have about giving meat to babes is that it's a non-kind thing to do, not very Christian. And we've got to be very sensitive to people where they are and what they're ready to hear. Um, uh, you know, I I actually had a family home evening on uh, Joseph Smith and his plural wives. I, I told this at the symposium. My my daughter about a year ago had a blowout where she came to me and said, "Dad, how come you never told me about this? Right. I mean, I'm just I'm finding this out now, and I I just is really unsettling to me." And I said, "Well, don't you remember the family home evening we had on this?" And she said, "No." She, you know, she readily admitted she essentially slept through it. It just wasn't interesting to her. <laughs> and and so our best efforts at inoculation may fall on, not only on deaf ears, but for people who are actually in high priest group, you know, that day. So. I believe that the church has an obligation to be honest, transparent, and forthright. Our devotional materials don't have a duty to be New Mormon history, and they don't have a duty to, you know, give all of the sources and talk about all of the different possibilities of interpretation. But when they address an issue, they have a duty to discuss it in such a way that it's not merely accurate. But if there's an issue in the background, they have a duty, I believe, to at least acknowledge it. And we can do a better job than we've done. Um, I, I think it would be worthwhile to have, uh, at least at the institute level, uh, certainly down at BYU, they have a duty. I, and I will say this, coming out of my BYU religious education, I felt a bit ripped off in my New Testament classes. I mean, I never once heard of the synoptic problem in New Testament classes. It is, however, discussed, by the way, in the, in the manual on the New Testament. <laughs> Um, my teachers just never decided to teach it, I guess. But we have a duty, for instance, if we're going to talk about the New Testament, we've got to discuss the synoptic problem. If we talk about the Old Testament, we've got to talk about the documentary hypothesis. And if we're talking about church history, we've absolutely got to address the fact that there were different versions of the first vision and what that means. By the way, that's not troubling at all to me, and I don't think it ever has been. But we've got a duty also to raise the, the issues that, that troubled them and why people were upset when Joseph, with Joseph Smith in Kirtland when the Kirtland Safety Society went down. And we've got a duty to discuss not merely the fact that Joseph Smith was martyred, but that the people who martyred him thought they were doing us all a favor because of his polygamy, those kinds of things. And so it, it, it's something we can do better at, but I readily admit that the decisions how, when, and where are, are decisions that I don't pretend to have ready and easy answers to. Uh, and let me be clear that while I believe we all have a duty to be diligent in learning everything we can about the gospel and to study the, the history that is ours, I don't expect new members and I don't expect converts to have been engaged in this all their life or to know all about it. And we've got to bring them through as lovingly and openly and transparently as we know how to do and listen to the Spirit and deal with them in love. And I don't know how else to approach it other than that. 
Well, that's beautiful. I just I just want to thank you all. I'm I'm surprised at the level of optimism that we have from all three of you. Uh, not that you're optimistic, but that we have such strong, unanimous sort of a consensus that openness and candor really will not only uh, be required, but will probably be a positive thing in the end for the church. And I, I share a hope that that's the case. And so uh, thank you all so much for contributing. It's now time for our fame. It's now time for our famed end of show rant where each of our panelists get to spend, uh, you know, 20, 30 seconds or whatever, ranting on an issue of importance or concern or interest to them. Uh, David, why don't you start? Um, my rant has to do again with movies. Uh, when I went to see September Dawn, we uh, sat through the trailers, and I always look forward to the trailers, and I'm invariably disappointed. Trailers tend to be, have terrible production values and be put together very poorly. So I write these reviews of trailers whenever I go to see movies, uh, treat them as two-minute movies, and uh, kind of analyze how they work. And invariably, they're very, very bad. So I would like to issue a call to Hollywood to increase the quality of movie trailers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. All right, John Hamer, you got a rant for us? Yeah, well, for, first off, uh, based on the discussion we just had, I want to nominate um, Blake to write the new Gospel Doctrine manual. So long as he, <laughs> as long as he, he vows, as long as he vows to avoid the, the word epistemological. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, my rant. I just want to. I just want to actually, instead of have a rant, have a have a pitch. We are um, um, the John Whitmer Historical Association is having its annual conference this year in Kirtland. And so if you're interested in all of this, uh, all of this history stuff that we're talking about, we're having a, a whole group of historians and enthusiasts and everybody is going to descend on uh, Kirtland in, in the September 20th, 7th through the 30th. And it's, these things are just so much fun. And, and a lot of the nice thing about it, as opposed to um, even the Mormon History Association or Sunstone, it's, it's a it's smaller, more intimate crowd, but you're going to, you know, meet all the same historians whose books you've read and all that kind of thing, and share ideas. the uh, the The topic is called communal uh, experiments among uh, Latter Day Saints, and it's held in the Kirtland Temple and surrounding buildings. So, brilliant! Uh, thank you, John Hamer. Blake, you got a rant for us? I do. My rant is about the non-Mormon response to the Bushman book. I just, I'm really upset that. You know, they're demanding that a Latter-day Saint who writes history has to write history from their perspective and adopt their assumptions. And if they don't explain to their satisfaction how Joseph Smith pulled off his fraud, then, you know, the book is simply worthless in their view. And, you know, we have to adopt their assumptions in order to write anything that they're going to to read or that they're going to give any credit to. You know, I think that tolerance goes both ways. And... I shouldn't have to adopt the kind of explanations that, that non-Mormon historians would give if I'm writing about something that is part of my own faith. And I would give the same charity to somebody who's writing in another faith tradition or even in a non-faith tradition. When a naturalist, an atheist, writes about um, the cosmos, I expect him to discuss it in a different way than a theist does. And if I'm discussing Joseph Smith as a Mormon, I'm going to take seriously his story, and I'm going to see it from his point of view, and then I'm going to ask the difficult questions about his point of view. But I'm not going to begin with the assumption that there has to be some kind of explanation as to how Joseph Smith pulled it all off when it was all such 
so obviously contrived and and uh, fraud that that really bothers me it's not fair and to the extent that academia adopts the assumption that everybody has to adopt their naturalistic assumptions or they're simply ruled out of court then the naturalistic assumptions are self-defeating and i don't think that academia serves us well when it does so all right that, oh did you have something else blake no, that's okay. it. I'm mad enough of that. All right, good. <laughs> well, I'll just, um, I've got a couple quick things. I first, um, I just want to give credit where credit is due, and I've mentioned this before, but I'm continually grateful and impressed at the LDS Church's um, levels of candor and openness, both in the many church news articles that have been coming out that have been dealing with all sorts of issues that are complex and difficult, like the the first uh the First Vision um, versions, Mountain Meadows Massacre, uh, homosexuality, etc. Um, the church is actually taking it one step further again. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, they, they've just uh, now come out with a, um, a two-year sort of series on the, the study of the life of Joseph Smith. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but the, 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 this series is a two manuals or one, but it definitely represents a new level of candor about the life of Joseph Smith. Is that right, guys? Yep, it is. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, another feather in the church's hat at trying to uh, carefully and thoughtfully uh, move to this uh, level of openness that we all are are, um, aspiring towards. Um, I also just want to give a quick shout-out to our good friends Sky um, Pixton and uh, Clayton um, Pixton. Actually, it's Sky Engstrom now and Clayton uh, uh oh i'm sorry sky and her husband um man i'm just so confused sky picks in the person who provides us with some of the music that we use her husband has cancer you can go up online to her blog and see that her and her husband have been dealing with that and have been very open about his chemotherapy treatments but we want to give a shout out to our good friends the Ingstroms, as well as clayton pixton who also provides some of our music so a shout out to them and I just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to Mormon Matters. I want to give a special thanks to Ann Porter, our um, our champion of all things herpetofauna. She's done a good job of, of keeping us uh, in line and uh, on schedule, even though we exceeded schedule today. We hope you've enjoyed it. But let me give a quick shout-out and thanks also to David, um, John Hamer, and Blake. Thanks, you guys, for coming on this episode. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, John. Thanks, John, for having us. Yeah, I also enjoyed it. Thanks, John. All right, and uh, please uh, check us out at mormonmatters.org. If you want to comment on this episode or any other episodes, please uh, make sure and uh, tune in your loved ones to the Mormon Matters podcast, and we very much look forward to other episodes coming down the pike soon. Take care and talk to you guys all soon.